is Color Speak, unveiling truth for light. Hi, I'm your host, Janet Huxley, author J.M. Huxley. Welcome to this podcast to unveil truth and uplift you. Here you will find truth talk for relevance restoration, social influence, and dynamic purpose in all places and all seasons. Here we will unveil truth for color. Light is where you'll find truth. Truth is where you'll find color. Color is where you'll find God. Color is God. It's His love for you. Can you even imagine a monotone world? Of course not. God gave us color, but He says this world we know is but a shadow of things to come. He tells us our minds cannot imagine what He has prepared for us in the next the color there will undoubtedly blow our minds. Color here on earth is defined as the property possessed by an object of producing different sensations on the eye as a result of the way the object reflects or emits light. Light is what makes color happen. Color is a product of light and God is light. Light is what causes us to celebrate diversity. The colors of our skin, the textures of our hair, the talents we possess, our cultural uniqueness, our experiences, our stories, the world around us. Our guest today is a woman whose story I am excited to hear. I've been pestering Laura to come on this show for months now, and I'm sort of giggly as I admit this. Laura is my Bible study leader at church, a mother, a missionary, and a crusader for Jesus. She is absolutely radiant with the Holy Spirit and so full of love for others. You need not have known her for any great length of time to know this is true immediately. Laura is the mother of a three-year-old girl named Harper, and recently she gave birth to a baby boy named Luke, who is now three months old and sleeping right now. So we're hoping we can do this interview without a whole lot of interruption. But I told her if that happens, it's going to be totally fine. Laura spent time as a missionary in India and met her husband there and spent five years ministering to the people in India. And I'm, like I said, so happy to have her here. It is our honor. Laura, thank you for coming on Color Speak to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. I'm so excited. Well, okay, so we haven't known each other very long. My family began worshiping at a new church just before the pandemic. But then with worshiping from home, there was really no way to get to know anyone in the congregation. And then earlier in my life with homeschooling and working, it had been literally years since I had been able to participate in a morning Bible study. And last fall, I determined that had to change. So in the new church, I felt disconnected. And I knew that uh, until I was able to connect with other women, I was really not going to be able to truly feel, connect, know the people there. Because that doesn't happen until you're in intimate small group settings. So I convinced my daughter, Kelsey, to join me, as you know, and we began a study on the attributes of God together. So I don't know if I shared this with you. I may have. I may have. But here's where I get real. So on the first day I showed up to class. (laughs) I'm wondering what's going to happen. (laughs) Even though we were still masked up and we really couldn't see each other, I realized quickly 
oh my gosh, I'm the oldest woman in this group. <laughs> at least, listen, at least by a decade or two. So, no, that's not true. That's yes. Not true. Yes. And all of the women were young mothers. And I, I realized, okay, so this is part is true. I thought, oh my lands, I'm the only grandmother here. So, and then I thought, what happened to me? Because every study I'd ever been in, I was one of the youngest. So all of a sudden I felt like I blinked and the years passed and oh my gosh, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I hope I won't be a drag. Oh my goodness. No. So you could want a life to our group. That's for sure. Well, you know, that part I, I will admit. And, and here's the, here's the laugh about it. And the sad part of it, this is exactly what I speak into on color speak and, and what we allow the Holy spirit to speak into. So I was thinking, okay, I got to practice what I preach. So what was I thinking? I was, I'll tell you what I was thinking. I was letting the enemy get to me. But you and the women in that group blessed me more than I could have imagined. And I, and I got to thinking, I'm sure there's every generation where believers look to the younger ones with heartache on the outside and they think, this is the way things are going in the world. And and this is undoubtedly truer than ever as the enemy ramps up his game, I think, in preparation for the return of our Savior. So I think the enemy is roaring about like a lion, as he's done in every generation. But mm-hmm. I think now I tend to think, as probably other generations have, this is more true than ever before. But mm-hmm. in the group of women that you led, and I was a newcomer, you know, that you all welcomed in so readily and so lovingly. I saw such promise. I saw another generation of women on fire for the Lord and committed to ensuring their own children are being brought up in the faith. And we got so deep into the word and to into understanding our God. I'm so grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the friendships I formed. And I'm so grateful for you and so grateful for your willingness to come talk to me here. Of course. Well, we just need each other. I think Having too much of the same in a group is good because you can understand each other, but we need people older than us to speak in to remind us of God's faithfulness. I think we need people younger than us that we can be reminded of the struggles of their season. And yeah, there's a reason that we just need everyone in the body. I couldn't agree more. And it gets back to that color and that diversity that we talked about, but it's celebrating the beauty of each season of life. And looking back, as I like to say, like toward the younger generation, toward you all, I was able to receive so much edification and so much encouragement and uplifting by seeing that just as I look to older generations when I need information as to what I can expect in the years to come and how that faith is played out and looks like in their lives. And in every season, there is something the Lord is doing and something he expects of us in terms of fulfilling that purpose. And yeah, I just, I love that. And I think in too many settings, I don't know if you've seen that before, but I've seen in some church settings, sort of the sequestration of certain groups. And I've heard the older say, oh, those youngers, they never reach out to me. And I'm thinking, (laughs) well, wait a minute, why don't you reach out to the youngers? And I've heard the younger say, oh, those old people. I know. Yeah. I think it's just human nature that we do that. It was probably true however many years ago. And it's still true that it's just easier. Like wants to be with like. Yeah. But the moment that someone steps out of that, then the other says, oh, 
wow, okay, my heart is touched for someone different than me. And then you respond and then the other side, their heart opens up too. I feel like that's just so powerful. But it takes someone to break that ice and reach out. Yes, for sure. When you're in the church and you're worshiping and the Holy Spirit is present, he just cuts through those generational barriers like in a way that's just so magnificent. And I know my mom has experienced that. Uh, my daughter went to Bible school and she had some of her friends mm-hmm. with my mom who's in her 80s. And my mom was so impressed. She said they were asking questions about me. They wanted to talk to me. And that was just precious mm. to my heart to see. That is. Well, Laura, tell me about you. <laughs> tell me some more. <laughs> oh, what do you want to know? Where should I start? When you were leading our group, when we were getting to know each other in the fall, the first day, you had us all give some information about ourselves. And I loved what you had to say about coming from a small town in Kansas, because as you know, I love Kansas. I'm in love with Kansas. Yes, yes, you did. And actually, that was, yes, now that you say that, I remember that about you, that you affirmed me. So my fun fact is that (laughs) I love Kansas. Like you said, I'm from a small town in central Kansas, population 1,200, and I grew up on a farm outside of that tiny little town. And so I'm just from that background and have appreciation for all things agriculture. And yeah, in our school, we celebrated Kansas every day, which is January 29 for anyone who is curious <laughs> about that. But yes, now that I have kids, it's fun. I get to celebrate it with them and do the fun little crafty things and little snacky things. And I just love this place that I am from. And I left it for a while to go to India, but now here I am back and I am very thankful. Well, we're going to get to that because I want to hear all about that. I love the cultural diversity there. So, okay, let's talk about Kansas Day. Can we for a minute? Because... (laughs) I'm from California and I I don't know that there's a California day. I mean, every kid in California grows up learning about Junipero Serra and the missions that were established up and down the coast and the Spaniards and all of that. But I don't think we have a California day or if we do, you know, someone can call me out on that. But I was really surprised because, you know, I wrote a book called Milk and Honeyland and it's largely mm-hmm. about Kansas and my experience moving to Kansas and experiencing living on a farm. And my editor said when we were first talking about releasing it, she said, let's do it on January 29th. And I said, why on earth would we choose that day? And then she explained, it's Kansas Day. So this is for those that don't live in Kansas. Laura, will you tell me what that is? And will you please tell me what you did as a kid to celebrate that? Because I was so impressed. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, Kansas Day is just the day that Kansas became a state. So I imagine every state has a day. If not, you could make a day for whatever day your state became a day. Kind of the quintessential thing, at least in my school when I was little, was we would have graham crackers where we'd frost the graham cracker and then we'd take a bite, a small bite out of the top right-hand corner. Because if you look on a map, Kansas is pretty much a perfect rectangle, but then kind of has a, looks like the tip of it's been (laughs) torn off. And so that's what we do. And then you take a star sprinkle and you put it in the middle where our capital is. So now that I have a toddler, that's like the best and thankfully easiest little snack ever. And she just thinks it's the best <laughs> thing. So we do that. And I even celebrated Kansas Day in India, which is I mean, anyone in America knows that state days are not big holidays. But my friends there would say, happy Kansas Day. What are you doing to celebrate? Tell me all about it. 
thinking that it was kind of a big festival, just like their festivals are pretty big. So I made it a big deal over there too, even though, even though it's not a big celebrated thing here. Does Harper ask you to celebrate more than once a year? (laughs) Well, she's just getting old enough to where she's starting to understand that. So, so far, no, but if she does, I will say yes. Yes. Every day is worth celebrating Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) It is interesting, though, that you're doing that. And as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking, what a wonderful tradition you're instilling in your own kids. Uh, Okay, so tell me about growing up on a farm. What what did you do there? Did you grow or have livestock? Actually, both. So my dad farms with my uncle and my grandpa. And they have cattle is kind of our biggest thing in the winter and then also wheat in the summer. So we're actually coming up on wheat harvest for where we are in Kansas next week. um, My husband and our kids will go and we'll stay with my folks and my husband will help um, my dad with the wheat harvest for two weeks or so. So that's kind of your big thing in the summer, all hands on deck. Um, My part in that, I wasn't like out in the field. So I also have an older brother. So my part of the farm was maybe just the way our family functioned, a more traditional role of I didn't do so much like hands on, but I would support and like at harvest time, be a part of helping my mom with the meals and take them out to the field. I was also more interested in that anyway. I love to cook. I studied food science in college. So that kind of fit well for me. Nice. Yeah. And you got farm fresh goodies. Yeah, exactly. So our, the farm I grew up on was, you know, surrounded by pasture and fields, but the farm, if, you know, imagine quotations, the farm was actually the farmstead two miles away that my grandparents raised my dad and his siblings on. So my dad would go to the farm as in my grandparents. And that's kind of where the main operation base was. So. Okay. It's definitely a whole family, family thing. And I'm just so thankful, you know, growing up, it was just a normal thing. And because we were in rural area, other, other of my friends grew up on farms, but, you know, as I've gotten older, even reading the Bible, God uses so many farm analogies, the hardworking Mm -hmm. farmer, the patients at the farm, all these things. I got to see that literally lived out in front of me to see how hard my dad worked, to see the faith and the patience and that you don't know you know, if a hailstorm is going to come two weeks before harvest and take out your crop. And if it does, it does. And then you trust God to still provide. Yeah. Even if that happens, you don't know if he's going to send the rain that in your mind, you think the crop needs, he's going to send what he sends and then he's going to provide regardless. And so I feel very, very blessed to have seen that lived out in front of me in the way that I did. I, I think that it's made the scriptures come alive to me as I've read that and helped me put those principles at least attempt to put them into into practice, remind myself of them in my daily life now, just the patience, the endurance, the hardworking, and the persevering aspects I've seen in my dad and my family. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is really huge. Now, just backing up a little bit, as I shared with you, and you know, I'm from California, and I didn't have any of those experiences. And then I moved here and then ended up quitting my job, as you know, and my husband Mm -hmm. and I moved south of town. We're way south of Kansas City. I always kiddingly say we're closer to Oklahoma, the state line, (laughs) than we are (laughs) Kansas City. And, And it was a wild experience for me and learning to grow and sort of 
tame the wilderness, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and be at the mercy of so many elements. And it wasn't until I had experienced all of that, that I took a step back and began to, well, first of all, really understand God better and how he works and and the symbolism involved in all of that. It was such a revelation for me. And the second part of it is, it occurred to me, I, I wish, and I know it's not possible, but I wish that every human had that opportunity. And here's why, because I don't think you fully appreciate what you've been given, what's on your plate until you understand that someone labored greatly to provide that for you or an animal gave its Mm -hmm. life for you. And when you have that understanding, then I think there's so much less waste and there's certainly less apathy Mm-hmm. It's just so mind changing. I had my kids out yeah. working in the fields and they, believe me, groused. I don't know that they had the attitude that you all had. <laughs> well, I don't think I always had the attitude that I could easily paint the picture of. I appreciate it now that I'm out of it. But when you're a kid. Oh, oh, yeah. And then one day, you know, we hadn't been here long and one of my kids popped off with, this is what we pay other people to do. And I was just furious. I thought, I'm a failure as a parent. You know, like what mindset do you have that you think it's actually acceptable to think that you are better than someone else and that someone else should be providing for you? No, you get out here and you work and you figure it out. Uh And of course, it was, you know, grousing for 55 minutes and working for five. And yeah, it was great. It was lovely. It was a good Uh time. I'm telling you as the mom, because (laughs) I was always told, well, I want to go back into the city. I want to live in the city where kids are allowed to do fun things like go to the mall and the movies and play ball or whatever it was. And here we are. It's the end of the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was winter wheat. Is that right? So you planted during the winter and harvested about summertime. Uh huh. And harvested in the summer. Mm-hmm. I know from my history that that really came about that thinking came out of the Dust Bowl era and over farming and wheat production. Do uh-huh. you have any association with that? I mean, you talk about your grandparents. Were your grandparents here at that time? Or do you have ancestors that had to live through that period of time? Oh, they were. Yes, my grandparents were here. Their parents were first generation Americans. And we're part of the group of people that brought some of the wheat that's in Kansas here, which is kind of a neat fact. Um, yeah, central Central Kansas is actually where is a is where the people settled that brought the it's hard red winter wheat is the variety of of wheat, and they brought it um, with them over from Prussia area. Just my ancestors moved around a lot before they came here, but yeah, my my grandparents were alive during during that time. I wish I knew more stories. They're still, I still have them here with us. I've been thinking that I need to to interview them, to have them write down their stories. They're in their upper 80s now. I'm like, these are things that I want to know and not forget. I want my kids to know. And no better time than to ask them to write them down now. I am tingly right now. I want the, <laughs> I want you to ask that. Okay, so let me let me tell you. Okay, I am fascinated with the Dust Bowl. I actually taught a class for an entire semester to middle school homeschoolers years ago <laughs> at a co-op we had entirely on the Dust Bowl. And I'm sure you've seen Ken Burns' production, right? Uh The documentary. It's fascinating. And I'm actually writing a novel, and it contains information about the Dust Bowl. Now, here's why I say I'm tingly. Because I have asked people in this area 
for stories and they're not really, they're sort of hard to find out here. Our neighbors just to the south east of us, uh, they're in their 80s as well, and they've been farming forever. And he talks about a one-room schoolhouse that existed in the area, and he was the one responsible for stoking the fire in the wood-burning stove when he was growing up. And I I just love it. But he doesn't have a lot of information about the Dust Bowl, because obviously Kansas City really wasn't right in the throes of it. We were on the fringes. Yeah. So I would love for you to talk to your grandparents, but I'm going to talk to you later about maybe talking to them. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's fascinating. I, I really have thought I need to ask them, you know, not just about that era, but all sorts of things. I'm like, they have so much wisdom, you know, 89 years of a life of different experiences that I want to glean from and not let be forgotten. Yeah. So this is a good reminder for me too. Yeah. Well, and, you know, for those listening that may not even know about what the Dust Bowl was or it's sort of sketchy information, because I've had people, even in this area, when I've asked them, or especially my students, you know, I teach high school classes now, they've said, well, what is the Dust Bowl? <laughs> Nobody really knows. <laughs> and I just, it was such a huge deal. People suffered so much from it. And it was, It was wild. And for my little part in this frontier experience, which is nothing like what your parents and grandparents have experienced. I mean, I can run into Kansas City. You know, there's a Uh Panera, not, you know, 25 minutes. It used to be the nearest anything from us was about 30, 35 minutes. And it was a Starbucks. We have a small town Mm -hmm. and there are grocery stores. But when we first moved out here, there were no stoplights. (laughs) <laughs> and now I think we I think we have three. Okay. But it's been and we've been out here for about 17 years. So we've seen some progress. It's nothing like yes. your folks experienced in the middle of Kansas. But it's been hard. I mean, we've had all kinds of like you said, climactic experiences. The weather has been an issue from, uh, you know, the hottest drought experiences, which we suffered in 2012, and we had animals dying from it. And then, of course, we've had those crazy storms where we're, you know, huddled in the basement, and we're far from tornado sirens. So we don't, we don't hear them. And, oh, the whole nine yards, which I don't need to belabor at this point. But I have always had a heart for people, the earliest pioneers, who not only had to contend with the coyotes and things that we do, and even we Mm -hmm. have cougars mm-hmm. and the cougar population. I don't know if you know this is on the rise here in Kansas. I've heard I've actually heard that. Is that true? It is true. Well, and when we first got out here, we had some issues, some real issues. And one of our neighbors had phoned one day and said, uh, there's a couple of cats headed down your way. And I said, Oh, yeah. And he said, they're about 150 pounds a piece. <laughs> and I said, you know, that's the size of circus lions, right? He said, oh, yeah, 100%. And my llama is very tall, and she had scratches on her neck, and we had animals disappearing, and our fences have always been very secure. But what could lift a 100-pound goat over a fence? You know what I mean? So yeah. I knew there was evidence, but the Department of Conservation... You're coming out from California. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Where did I move to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, coyotes would come into our yard, steal our chickens, surround our dogs. It was great. They were really brazen at the beginning. Yeah. So the latest reports are they are on the rise and even black bears in southeast Kansas are are here again, which is amazing to me. It's so crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I guess, you know, cougars, males need to separate from the pride. And so they're moving out and they're growing. And I think for a while, I, I think this is still true. It's you're not allowed to shoot them. So. Mm-hmm. so anyway, that's where we are. But back in the day in the 1800s, when folks first got here and started to settle on the land, there were wolves like crazy. Yeah. There were Issues with the Native Americans, there were scalpings, and of course, then we had the border wars, Mm -hmm. and that was a rough time, and so there was a book, and then I need to shut up, because I really need to hear about, (laughs) but I get so excited about this. There was a book that someone wrote, there was a woman who collected stories of women pioneers, your grandparents would love this, but I found it on eBay, and it's a book that's out of print. It was published in the 80s, and it was a woman who took her grandmother's letters and published them. The grandmother had solicited women in the area and had collected over 400 letters from pioneer women who told stories of their experiences here in Kansas and talked about the wolves that literally dug their way into sod dwellings. The real peril, like in one case, a woman whose husband was out of town came over to another woman's house and said, I can't take it. I'm so nervous. I can't be alone at night. Well, these two women huddled together in this sod house at night. Both of their husbands were gone away for supplies. They had to stay up all night long as the wolves tried to tear into the sod houses. And one woman became sick from hysteria and fear. The fear literally made her sick. And that ratcheted up the fury of the wolves who dug more furiously. And their stories are, I mean, just terrifying. They were trying to shoot them, trying to bludgeon them out. And eventually the woman died that was scared. And so the wolves were really, you know, they smelled the death. They were trying to get in. And story goes by the time the men returned, one of them was so distraught, seeing the outside of the home, finding his wife had passed. He just, he packed up and moved home to the East Coast. These are very real experiences. They're not contrived yeah. by Hollywood. Yeah, like this truly happened. Yeah. So did your grandparents experience any of that? You know, I honestly don't know. I don't, nothing of that sort that I, that I am aware of. But hearing those stories, I did right before our baby was born, I was reading to the Little House on the Prayer series. <laughs> I love that. Which is is its own thing. And tons of people had read that. But, and it's funny, I open up the cover and it says for ages eight to 12. And this is my, you know, I'm in my thirties. This is my, my (laughs) reading I'm doing, but to read the stories and a lot, you know, it's true based on a true story. I'm sure fictionalized some, to some extent, a little different than the letters you're speaking of, but just to be reminded of the way of life. And like you said, the truly fearful experiences and the the hardships they endured, the strength that they had to have. You know, I think the women had to have not only physical strength and capabilities, but also just a type of mental strength that I don't feel is that we have today that I know that I'm lacking. Oh, me too, for sure. I couldn't kill a spider before moving out here. You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, it, it just amazes me the strength that I've had to come up mm-hmm. with and I'm nothing like those people. Oh, yes. But yeah, I, I can't even imagine. I Yeah, I don't know about my grandparents, what type of stories they have, but this is making me very curious to ask them. Well, I'm fascinated. I read the Laura Ingalls set 
I loved it. My grandma bought it for me. And I have thought about Laura a lot as I talk with you, Laura, because in the year of drought, oh, that one year in 2012, we were told we couldn't shoot off fireworks, be careful out here. And I was just praying. I thought, what if we have a grass fire? What would I do? I have my animals in various areas that are fenced off. How would I let them out? How could I provide with a garden hose? And one night I looked out (laughs) to the horizon and there, we did have a couple of fires and it was some scary. It was a scary time. I feel like when you're out in the middle of Kansas, you experience everything there is to experience that nature can throw at you. If I'm being honest Mm -hmm. and yeah, we get it all here. Yes. And so the long and short of it is, I so admire people like your parents and grandparents. And I guess that's why I'm rambling on that I would convey some understanding, some empathy for those who are listening in for what this life is like, what these people do for us, how these early pioneers forged away. And for those that had the grit and the determination to stick through all of these times, all of the ups and downs, cyclical ways that they were tormented, <laughs> and the, especially the Dust Bowl. So, yeah. Wow. Yes. I want to talk with your grandparents. <laughs> I want to hear more. <laughs> <laughs> they are the sweetest. They just, anyone who talks to them, they're like, oh my goodness, your grandparents. <laughs> Aww. Well, tell me about your time in India. What was it that caused you to want to travel to India as a missionary? Yeah. So, I mean, the long and short of it, growing up, I grew up um, in the church from the time that I was born. I cannot honestly ever remember a time that I didn't believe in God. And, you know, there came that point when I needed to make that decision for myself to choose to follow him. It's not just something that we're automatically born a Christian. You choose that. But um, I feel really fortunate that growing up, I had a lot of people around me pouring into my spiritual life, speaking into me, influencing me in that direction, and just really speaking God's truth into my life. And so, you know, our church would have missionaries come visit. I always knew that missions was a good thing, but it was never anything, honestly, that I thought that I would ever go be a part of, or I never felt called to it. I thought I had to have some, I don't know what I thought, some like vision or specific, like, message in the clouds kind of calling us <laughs> like, well, I don't have that. So, you know, I, I, I just had no reason I thought to pursue that. Um, then when I, I went to college, so I, my personal relationship with Christ began when I was quite young in in grade school. And so even from the time I was young, I was growing in my, my love for the Lord and reading his word. I love to read the Bible. I was really sporadic at it. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any, of those great habits that I'm learning to put into my life now. I didn't have those in my life, but I just like loved reading the Bible when I, when I did and when I could. That's amazing. Um, That's really good. Yeah, I remember, I remember it was very, just truly very organic. Mm. And I mean, I have very specific memories of sitting. I also, I just love to, I love to read in general. I love to learn. I think, um, yeah, just studying, God's word even now is one of my favorite things. I'll have to go deep. I think, you know, the deeper I go, the more he's like, gives me the desire to, to learn more, to read more. So I love to like worship God with my mind. Also, of course, my heart, but there's this, this great quote 
that is from Jen Wilkin. She has a great book called Women of the Word that I just highly recommend that says the the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And so we often take truth into our mind first and then it can seek down, sink down into our hearts and truly impact us. So I know it could be so easy for me to be feelings led, but really like God's Bible, God's word, the Bible goes into my mind first and then my feelings follow. That's wonderful. I'm glad you said that because I, I reflect upon some of the conversations I've had or I've led and I take responsibility for this. You know, we celebrate what God is doing here, but I think that, well, and he's probably put it on my heart lately. There's not enough of that reflection. There's not enough here on this podcast discussing and really wrapping our minds around the truth that you just spoke. And that is we can't allow our emotions to rule. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah, it is. So hard because we feel it and they, they shout so loudly at us. Mm-hmm. And emotions are valid. That's something sure. interesting. I'm getting a little off. I'll circle back to India, but, you know, I'm of the generation, I would say, where we don't have emotional, like the emotional words to express um, what we're feeling. And we've, we're starting to identify that. And it's kind of gotten us into trouble where we just stuff stuff stuff. And then it, you know, it all comes out later. And so we're kind of hardcore going the other way, focusing a lot on our emotions. Um, and I feel like there's a healthy ba- a more healthy balance somewhere in between of where we, we don't run away from them. We recognize them, we take them to God, but we let him speak his truth into that. And we don't let our emotions rule over us. Wow. Beautifully said. Yes. Um, But anyway, circling back to India. So I grew up strong, strong spiritual heritage that I'm so very grateful for, hopeful that I can, you know, just pass on to my children what was passed on to me. But going into college, I joined a campus ministry, which I am, I look back on that and I'm so thankful for because it was there that I really started to learn about discipleship and some of more of the tangible practices of our faith. Not that we, you know, how to read our Bible, how to study our Bible, because while I did read it, I didn't really know how to study it or like I just flip it open and read, which is great because all of God's word is inspired and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training us. But um, it was there that I really learned how to go deeper in that. I grew a lot in my prayer life. I learned how to consistently memorize scripture and just start to see the benefits of that. And it was while I was in college that I went to a summer, a nine-week summer training program, just an amazing opportunity down on the Gulf Coast, where we did really intensive Bible studies, and we lived in groups. And my group leader had us um, every night pray for a couple countries around the world, so that by the end of the summer, we had prayed for every country in the world. So I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Praying for these countries I've never even heard of. but um. So she was doing even the that. little tiny ones, yeah, the little, little dots tiny on the map. Ones, all of them. We prayed for all of them. Awesome. That's I quite mean, a task. Truth be told, some nights I was so tired. I'd be like, because I had that summer, you get a job. And I was working two jobs. I was working a breakfast shift at McDonald's, getting to work at 5 30 a.m. Oh, dear. And then you come home at the end of the day and you have night stuff every night. I mean, your schedule is packed. And so we're praying at night. Some nights they're having to like elbow me like, Laura, it's your turn. Wake up, you know, but God (laughs) still used that. So I feel like I'm preaching to myself here as I'm trying to teach my children, even if they don't seem like they're listening, (laughs) God is still using that. True that. So we're praying. And at the same time, I'm, 
it was really that summer where God put on my heart that he wanted me to speak my message to people, to be willing to be an ambassador for him, to be willing to, to make his message known to people who don't, to, who don't know him. And at that time I was thinking, you know, more like my friends, my family, the people I live around, people around here, you know, being willing to speak up on his behalf. Um, of which at that point I was really scared to do. I was really scared to bring up Jesus with, with people if I didn't know that they were already interested in him. But I felt like he wanted, you yeah. know, he wanted me to be willing to do that. So I was praying that he would change my heart. And then at the same time, I'm praying for these countries. And really it was, I think it was in that time where God just melded the two and was like, I'm not only going to give you a heart for other people. I'm going to give you a heart for the nations and the world. And I'm actually, I want you to go, you know, after college. And so that kind of where it all started. And then throughout college, I was a part of um, some other prayer groups that prayed specifically for the world on a regular basis. I had the chance to support financially a few people, which I feel like that was huge too. You know, they say where your, well, the Bible says where your, your treasure is, there your heart is. And it really is true where you put your time, your money, your focus, that's where your heart goes. And so just keeping my hand and my heart in a few things that kept me focused on what God was wanting to do around the world, I think ultimately is what sent me to India after I graduated. Wow. That's all of that is so good. So why India specifically? What opportunity arose or? Well, I had no specific place, but I felt very specifically like God wanted me to go, but it was opportunity and also learning more about the world, India is just incredibly unreached. So unreached, you might have heard of, or you might already know the term unreached people group. That just means people that have less than 2% of evangelical Christians, essentially people that don't have anyone that could tell them the story of Jesus. You know, it's just so sparsely populated by Christians that the majority of people have no access. Yeah. And so India, you know, if you Google unreached people groups, Sometimes you'll see maps that have based on like color dots, like green means there's a good amount of Christians in the area. Yellow is not very many, but some red means unreached, like no access. The whole country of India will be red. Um, there's just so few believers there. And so I learned about that. I'm like, wow, the need is so great there. And then also um, I had the opportunity. I knew of some teams that were over there. And actually, Janet, you might not know this, but my older brother actually a few years before me went to India to do mission work. Ah. And so obviously that was hugely influential sure. of of my deciding to go there was just his experiences. And he was in he was in a different city than I went to, but then he actually when I went, he moved cities. So we were in the same city working oh, together, which was That's wonderful. Such a special yeah, thing. For sure. Yeah. I mean, amazing. Who gets to do that? So, you know, I have to tell you what it's so funny, India of all places. So I don't know why I myself had such a fascination with India as a kid. And in college, I took an intercultural communication class and we were assigned a project where we had to choose a country and focus on that country's culture and ways of communication. And I chose India. And I think I ended up with like a 40 page paper on India. Anyway, it all fascinates me. So tell me about what that was like for you being there. Yeah, I mean, 
I think some of the biggest contrast was from the fact that I'm from a small farming rural town in Kansas. <laughs> and then I went and I lived in one of the the largest populated cities of India, 15 million people. So some of the differences just came from culture aside, small, tiny town to now I'm living in this massive city, people everywhere, public transportation. So there's that huge difference in addition to just the, the cultural differences that are there. But um, I mean, it was amazing. The people there are so hospitable and warm and welcoming, inviting us into their homes from the very beginning. So when I went, I was right out of college, single. I lived with a few girls. We lived on the fourth floor of this apartment building. Um, but right outside of our apartment, there was a family who, and not just one family, like extended family and down the street, multiple families, but just a lot of homeless people. Um, there's just there's a lot of homeless people mm. specifically in the city that, that we were in. And it breaks your heart just to see, you know, the conditions it's hot, you know, it's very, very hot in India. Um, right now is the hottest season. Actually the heat index gets hundred to the hundred twenties and oh. humidity is crazy monsoon rains for months in the summer. And they're right there on the sidewalk and they, you know, they don't have shelter. They have this tarp that they would tie up to the fence and live right there under it. They'd have their fire to cook their food. Um, when we first moved there, they, were, they had a little baby girl named Anima, and we watched her grow up for the next five years. That same family lived there wow. um, that whole time. And so that was, I mean, I think that was one of the initially most shocking things um, that I noticed, especially being from a small town. I was, I was sheltered from a lot of that. And I went to college and a town that was also not that big. So I just had not experienced a lot of exposure um, to homelessness. And so experiencing that for the first time was huge. And then also, of course, you know, just experiencing different religions. There's a lot of different religions um, represented in India, the biggest being Hinduism, which is about 80% of the country and about, not fully 20%, but 18% or so is Muslim. And so just experiencing for the first time living in a place where I could hear from the mosque, the call to prayer every morning and multiple times a day. And then also during the festival times of the Hindu festivals, right outside our apartment in the streets, just the, the celebration of all of that. And I just so appreciated people opening us into our homes at that time that we could celebrate, we could be with them while they celebrated and, and experience of that for the first time um, was just huge, but also just very different from what I had ever had ever experienced before. And so I was very thankful though, just the warmth of the people there because they, they let you in very quickly and um, make you feel like you're part of the family. And so mm. even, you know, one of now my, my closest friend from my time there, I got to know her around this the time that her grandmother actually got very, very sick and um, ended up in the hospital after I'd only been with my friend a few times. So her, her name is Payel, and she um, was quite a spiritual person and was telling me about 
you know, we were talking and they're, they're very curious and they, they want to know about everything about our lives, including spirituality. And so it's a very natural and open opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And where we were in the large city, um, a lot of people, interestingly, because of media access and internet, they've seen things like the passion of Christ, but that's about where they're where their knowledge ends. And so while many people in the big city who speak English, who have access to internet, have heard the name of Jesus, they don't really have an accurate, you know, picture representation of who he is or what he did or what he's offering to us. And so, you know, we're talking and I'm asking her about what she believes. And she was in the middle of a, um, I'm trying to remember how many days it was. I think it was like a six week fast, not like a full fast, but like a six week fast to one of the gods that her family followed. And her family had gone on a pilgrimage up to a mountain in another city to worship to a different God, um, a Hindu God. And, you know, she's very spiritual and very searching. And, and my first instinct when she was asking me about, you know, what do I believe was that she wasn't going to be very interested in Jesus because she has these other gods that she is clearly very devoted to. But when I told her the story and, and she was a woman who had never heard, she had no exposure, you know, she's asking me, you know, tell, tell me more. Um, she was like, that is amazing. No one has told me that I, I want to follow him. I want to follow him. And, you know, we're starting from grounds, you know, zero for her. So everything she learned, she just soaked up and it was just and then it was just amazing to see um, him change her heart as as she learned more and decided to follow him. And and uh, but yeah, shortly after I met her and spent some time with her, her grandmother's in the hospital, and so I went and visited and got to be there. And and you know she has big you know big family, lots of people there, and I had the chance to get to pray in the name of Jesus for her grandmother. And her grandmother did pull through at that time. Um, and they attributed that to the work of Jesus. Um, she ended up going, her grandmother ended up going back home and needed constant care and ended up passing away a few months later. But just the fact that her family, you know, welcomed me into the hospital at this, at this time to, to visit their grandma, you know, that just wouldn't happen here. You wouldn't just invite this foreigner from another country who you've just met, you know, cut, you know, let them into such an intimate time in your family. And yet, that happened there time and time again, they would just welcome me in and let me be there. So I was going to ask you what the catalyst was for her conversion and thinking, but it sounds to me like, well, first of all, I can assume it's the love that you showed her because love speaks louder than words, but it would also have been then that you were praying for her grandmother and her grandmother did see an improvement. And so that caused the family to respond. Yeah, right? I think so. How would one best, let's say, witness to a Hindu? How did you broach the conversation with this woman that you knew, or what was the catalyst there? Well, you know, how I broached the conversation was just to really, I think as our friendship grew and I, you know, I truly cared about her as I was, you know, starting that friendship and wanting to learn about her life and asking her about her beliefs and thoughts. And she responded to ask me. And so it's a very open and natural um, door to start the conversation. And really, honestly, like you said, you know, there's some things that we can do, you know, share our love and share truth and be authentic and not, you know, 
not trying to push our thoughts or beliefs on anyone, but ultimately, you know, God had to be the one to open her heart. And, you know, like I mm. said, she was sharing with about what she believed in. And in my mind, I was writing off that she wouldn't be interested. I thought, okay, you know, she's probably not going to be interested because of, you know, where she's at, but, you know, she's someone that God had chosen to be one of his and, and, you know, no matter what we say or don't say or do or don't do, he, if he's chosen someone, he will call them to himself. Now, I think it's one of the most amazing privileges that we get to be his mouth. He needed me to listen to him and to share, to share with her. Otherwise she would not have heard. She could not have responded. She needed me to to speak, but um, he had chosen her. Um, I think that was one of the hard things was, you know, I was there to be able to share the message of Christ and had the opportunity to share it hundreds of times, but very truly, I only saw a very small of hand, a very small handful of people respond. And that was hard because, you know, I've experienced the love of Christ mm-hmm. and the joy that he gives. And I wanted other people to experience that too. Um, but I'm not going to force anyone. I can't force anyone. You, you can't make someone believe something if God doesn't open the heart to it. And so I think it was, you know, reliance upon him to do the heart work and then and then doing my part too of truly loving and truly being there and, you know, being there in the hard moments, I think, like you said, was huge. When we can be there for our friends and family in the hard moments, it shows that we truly care. We're not just there when it's easy. We're not just there when it's convenient. We, we're there um, always for them. Mm, that's beautiful. You're answering the questions I have in my head <laughs> before I'm asking them because <laughs> I was going to say, what did it look like? Were there a lot of those experiences? But let me ask you, as we sort of circle back around to the end of our podcast, because it always goes so fast, what was the single biggest piece of evidence that you saw for God's involvement there? Was there anything that miraculously happened? Of course, what you've just shared is so supernatural and only God, only God could facilitate the change of heart or the interest that the woman and her family had in what you had to say about Jesus. But was there more of that? Was there anything big that God did? Or was it just you experienced such a confidence that he was steady and he was always at work, even in the little things, even when you didn't see those big things? Yeah, I I feel like being, being over there, I felt a spiritual darkness that I hadn't um, experienced before. I think exposure to different, you know, the principalities and powers of darkness, those, you know, who are not, you know, just the, the spirits that are not recognizing Jesus as Lord that exists and that's real and experiencing worship of of idol, true, true worship of idols and talking to friends and hearing experiences about dreams and visions and their devotion to, to powers that are not Jesus, um, felt very dark to me, but the darkness makes the light stand out all that much more. And so Mm, I love that. Um, you know, there are different things, even in my own personal life, my sister, in my first couple months over there, my sister got really sick and I mean, the way that God spoke to my heart and confirmed, you know, no matter what happens, 
that he is with me and beside me and he will provide for my needs spoke powerfully to me, you know, things in my own personal life or conversations have, you know, that I had with people there, other people that affirmed, even if they ultimately didn't decide to follow Jesus, just the thank you for sharing this with me. No one has shared this with me before. Mm -hmm. Um, Just that gratitude and lots of little moments of God's provision and protection. You know, I was a young single woman living in a large city in a foreign country and there are a few things that I look back on. You know, we we were very smart. We had a lot of rules in place, but you know, you're in a, you're in this place totally unfamiliar to you. And there there are some very specific times where I look back and I can know without a doubt that God was protecting me from something that could have gone differently than it did. Um, so I think yeah, just His protection and provision, the way He spoke to me the way I felt his kindness and his tenderness, even in times where I felt isolated and lonely and felt far from my family and far from everything I knew. And yet my closeness to him was very real. And, and not that it always felt that way. You know, I had some seasons that felt really dry and really lonely too, but the highs are very high, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, for some sure. of my, my closest moments of of time with him were, were in those period of years that I was there. And so mm. it's hard. It's not, it's not super tangible, but just the feeling of him with me and guiding me and leading me in those, those times of me being there was just very real and great evidence for me that God is real and true. And he is who he says he is. So he gave you the peace that you need when your sister was sick and you were so far away. And I can imagine yeah. that would have been, very unsettling and yeah. frustrating. And I sort of understand that my husband and daughter were away on a mission trip in Hong Kong when his father passed away. Oh, yeah. It was a rough time. And I remember having this conversation with him where he was trying to determine whether he would leave and leave our daughter there or what was going on. And he said, the Lord just gave him such peace. And that verse came to mind, let the dead bury the dead. And he said, I realized in that moment that my father had already gone to heaven and my rushing home wasn't going to change anything. Now, he, of course, made it back for the funeral. It was a rough time. So I I just I can imagine what that would have been like for you. And and I'm so glad that you were able to get through it with an understanding and knowledge that the Lord was right by your side and and he wasn't going to leave you. And, And I always have to remind myself that in those moments where it feels like. Uh, life is rough and and I'm just, I'm going through so much. And are you really there, Lord, I ask? And oh my goodness, I'm not feeling you. It's in those times. And I think we talked about this in our study, even when we were talking about the attributes of God, our minds may not be able to conceive that he is near, but that doesn't mean he isn't near. He's right, yeah. right by our sides, more so when we're going through those trials then he would be, not that he wouldn't be to any degree diminished in other happier times, but he's always with us, whether we and our humanists can perceive that or not. And that's where we get back to the feelings and intellectualizing, because we need to understand Mm -hmm. the truth of that so that our feelings don't rule. Yes. Very cool. Well, my friend, I could talk to you all day about India and your experiences there. And I would love to hear. Can you tell us really fast how you met your husband? Because you met him in India. (laughs) Well, we actually 
initially met before we went because we went to the same college and we were part of the same team that went. So when we went to India, there wasn't a team that we were joining. We were starting a new team. And I was on that team and he was on that team. So we had met before in college. But then once we were over there is when we started dating. So I, I was honestly shocked when he asked me out on a date. I thought that <laughs> he would no way would he be interested. But yeah, it's kind of fun. We started dating there. We got engaged there. And we flew back a month before our wedding. So, Aw, well, you just are beautiful people. Okay, understand where this is coming from. I think the best work is done in the darkness. God shines light in the darkness. And so you were working in the darkness, obviously. You talked about the palpable, tangible reality of that. And yet this beautiful love flourished over there. That Mm -hmm. is just so encouraging. And I always like to remember there's more light than dark. There's more good than bad, you know, but it is real. And and I'm so glad that you were able to be a part of changing that and obviously learning from that. I'm sure you grew by leaps and bounds. And it's wonderful that you were able to find your love there amidst all the work you were doing. Well, what else do you have for us, my friend? Is there anything else that you want to share with us? What would you leave our listeners with today? Oh my. Well, I mean, I was earlier, we were, we were talking a little bit, we mentioned endurance and perseverance, and then we didn't end up diving in, in any deeper in there, but that's been something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, I feel like I've heard this message spoken to me in this last year, and that's probably why it's been on my heart too, but just, especially in this time, this crazy, crazy time that feels like it's just continuing on and on in different ways ways, whether it's, you know, the COVID or the political Mm. thing, it just seems like one after another, after another thing that just feels really hard and kind of feels all consuming and pressing in just the need for endurance and perseverance. And I don't have to have all the answers for tomorrow. God just wants me to be obedient and faithful today. And, um, I think especially as a mom of two kids, I can, I can let a lot of fear and anxieties of the future just really bog me down. But um, in Matthew, when Jesus is telling his listeners, like, do not worry about today or do not worry about tomorrow. You know, today has enough troubles of its own. And he said, he tells them to look at the birds. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet the heavenly father feeds them. That's become a practice of mine is like every morning, especially, um, we have a room that was added to our house and then our deck is off of that room and I can really hear the birds. And so every day I've started this intentional practice of listen to the birds. God provides for the birds. How much more does he care for me? You know, he's given me this day and he wants me to listen to him this day. What does he want me to do this day? Okay. I can do that. I can be obedient today. I can be faithful today. And if I do that every single day, then it will be a life, you know, a life of obedience and faithfulness to the Lord, which is ultimately what I want to give him. And I know he'll provide for my needs today. And so he's going to keep providing for them every day. So even this morning before, before we talked, I heard the birds and I thought, ah, listen to the birds, you know, not only are they beautiful to listen to, but think about them. Jesus gave us this great model representation to think about, to remind ourselves. And so I'm I'm trying to, cultivate that practice of reminding myself of just his faithfulness and just the endurance to take it one day at a time, one day at a time. I don't have to have tomorrow's answers today. He gives me today's grace for today and he'll give me tomorrow's grace for tomorrow. That is very poignant 
excellent advice. I love that you had that to share for us. We need to remember that all of us. And I, I think it gets back to, you know, Philippians 4, 8, which is, you know, we need to think of whatever is true, noble, right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it's easy to get bogged down. And I have a cute little story for you. Well, maybe you'll find it cute. I just, <laughs> I love God's cuteness. Okay. I'm just going to say he's so cute. <laughs> he is because last night I got home late and my husband was watching the news on Fox and he said, Oh, you need to sit down and listen to this. And it was all about the fertility rates and how they're dropping. You know, and there's just so many reasons for that. But that's basically what it was. And I was just feeling so sad about the way the world is working and the messages being given to our children. I mean, it's just it's just so sick. But uh, I came downstairs. My daughter is home from college, the one that's getting married at the end of the year. And and we're busy planning. And she said, are you going to come downstairs? I said, yeah, I came down and we sat down on the couch and She had her laptop out. I had my laptop out and I pulled up my email and on Yahoo, there was the story about the woman that gave birth to 10 babies. Did you see that? No. Oh my! (laughs) It's crazy. And they say that it's been confirmed. Who knows? But she had multiple babies that broke a world record, of course. Then beneath that, there were all these stories of all these women around the world that had given birth to multiple babies. And I thought, now see, this is not to be missed. This is the way God communicates. I'm upstairs lamenting the fact that, you know, the fertility rates are down and what's going on. And and yet there's women having 10 babies. Seriously. And then my husband said, yeah, uh, well, yeah. And then the whole bit was some of the risk factors associated with kids having shots, the COVID vaccination shots. And, you know, it's scary. And I think, oh, what about the future and our kids, you know, and I, and I pop on downstairs. And the first thing I pull up is all of this information about fertility. And, oh my goodness. and I was, which speaking of, I'm interrupting right now, but my baby is crying and oh. my toddler actually just got home and is going, mommy, mommy, mommy. I'm so ha- See, there you go. Confirmation. It's God. He's so cute. Anyway, it's been lovely today. He's in control, still has plans, and we need not worry. And Laura, it's just been an absolute pleasure. So you go on. Thank you for talking with me today. I just love you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll talk more later, Janet. That sounds great. Take care. Okay, thank you. And the rest of you, please continue to join us on Color Speak wherever you find your podcasts. And now on Grace and Truth Radio World, this is J.M. Huxley for Truth Talk on Color Speak. Celebrating relevance, restoration, social influence, and dynamic purpose in all places and all seasons.